continue. I'm just going to share my screen and um, just let me know if you see a PowerPoint, you have a PowerPoint, okay. We can, Danny. Okay. All right, I'll just give, uh, let's see, just give one more minute just uh, for just people to to join, but um, I won't be able to just wait five minutes because we have uh, rich topics to cover today and we have three cases. So just wait a, just wait a couple more minutes. Patty. Hello. Dr. Yacoub, would you like to um, have control of your slides or should I just, I have them, your, your presentation in my slides, so I can also. That, that, that'd be perfectly fine. You can probably control it. There's okay. not much I'm going to do here. Okay. So I'll start. Um, today it's a, again a continued discussion and presentation of cases that we've we've had um, recently um, that have uh, had had kidney biopsies and uh, co uh, infection with COVID-19. Um, today I have two um, invited um, co-presenters, Dr. Fadia Koop from our estimated um, client and, and colleague from Mercy Care, um, and also Dr. Harshman uh, from uh, the uh, pediatric Divi division of pediatric nephrology and transplantation children's hospital. Thank you so much, both of you, for um, preparing and, and co-presenting this. I think it will it, it, it they will be different, um, very interest interesting discussions. So, um, and this actually first slide, uh, it was, I, I did put this um, illustration on purpose because as you can see, this is an electron microscopy image of um, a part of coronavirus um, that can be identified. As we know, the coronavirus has the spikes, spike proteins, which are attached to their membrane, hence their name, uh, because it, it mimics a crown. And we know it has a double membrane. Um, the particles by EM that have been increasingly documented, they have been documented as about 50 to 90, uh, up to a, close to 100 nanometers. So they haven't been homogeneous. Um, but anyway, so we'll start uh, by our first case, uh, which was Dr. Yacoub's case. And um, I'll just give the um, presentation to him and then we'll show the biopsy and discuss. 
Well, thank you, Daddy. I appreciate the, the invitation. So we have right here, 37 year old African American gentleman presented to emergency room and outside hospital in this area with about five to six days history of fairly mild symptoms, mostly uh, uh, GI actually, mostly some nausea, vomiting and occasional diarrhea, very, very minimal respiratory symptoms. The gentleman reported no significant past medical history and, and namely no significant family history of kidney disease. He denies uh, tobacco or drug use. He said he drank alcohol occasionally. His exam really not terribly remarkable except probably plus two edema. Uh, his lung exam was not terribly impressive um, and uh, his blood pressure was elevated. Uh, this is outside hospital in late August. Upon admission, his admission creatinine was 2.95. His serum albumin was still remaining level short, very shortly. Interleukin-6 was not measured at that time. C-reactive protein was measured and was, I believe, around 15. So it wasn't terribly high. His UA was fairly active urine. He had hematuria, proteinuria, granular, and hyaline cast. 24 hours urine protein was 7.1 gram. Uh, CPR SARS-CoV-2 uh, was positive nasopharyngeal swab. Classic CT, chest, I'm sure you guys all seen it. Ground glass, uh, patchy, bilateral, really classic uh, CT finding of uh, COVID-19. Again, if, if, even with this picture, he had very, very minimal symptoms and was not on oxygen. Uh, white count was okay, he had mild lymphopenia. A uh, bunch of studies done uh, were negative, really complement were normal in a ANCA double-sided DNA, anti-GBM negative, free light shame and a clot protein were negative. A bunch of our studies came not surprisingly negative, namely his HIV was negative. And that's his lab. Uh, you probably can even want to focus on albumin, uh, right middle of the screen here. Um, when he came in, his albumin was quite low at 2.0 and um, really didn't improve much uh, by the 4th. So he was admitted on the 30th, October 30th, and was discharged on the 4th. So by the time his, he was discharged, his albumin was 1.9. Uh, glucose was mm, upper normal when he came in. He was put, I believe, on two to three days steroid along the way. Upon discharge was 148. Uh, creatinine did not really get better. It's, uh, let me see if I can see it, at the bottom of the screen, uh, kind of in high four and low five. He was not oliguric. Can I move to the next? Sure. Okay. Uh, fairly asymptomatic otherwise. Uh, again, some mild nausea, mild diarrhea, some fatigue. It was actually pre-ANSI and had significant side effect from prednisone. Uh, the patient became um, anxious, um, angry, uh, agitated, uh, near to be irrational actually. Uh, but uh, kidney biopsy was done 11 to 2020 under CT guidance. 
So um, we received the biopsy. We had an adequate number of glomeruli. We had the total of 35 glomeruli, and uh, only three were globally sclerosal, less than, you know, uh, was very uh, mild focal global sclerosis. Um, the glomeruli, they had a spectrum of changes that um, showed basically varied from normal cellular uh, with maybe a mild mesangial expansion um, to having this alteration here. And we can uh, obviously see that this pomelus is not normal, but what, what is happening on an, on an HNE um, stain. So by this HNE stain, although you can see that there are these pink uh, round uh, uh, material here, uh, they don't really look like depositions. They look like they appear as they are more like inside the cytoplasm of cells. You can also see um, these cells that they, they look uh, fairly atypical with very, um, large nuclei and um, as, uh, dispersed chromatin. And by HE, um, as you know, uh, it, it's not an ideal stain to just uh, evaluate glomerular detail, but you, even by HE, you can see that this is abnormal. So um, observing the glomeruli by other more specific glomerular stains like a, a Jones methanamine silver here. You can see the Bowman's capsule and then you can now appreciate the morphology of the glomerulus. So you can see that this is the what is uh, what re resembles a normal uh, uh, you know, uh, a structure of a glomerulus, but then you can see that these um, cells that are in the urinary space are very large and they have uh, these round uh, protein droplets. It gives the appearance that they're constipated with protein. You can also see that there is a collapse of the glomerular tuft and these, and you know, when I say the word collapse, it, of course it rings a bell on, any, on everybody. And um, so it has had features of collapsing glomerulopathy. And actually, um, and this is just a larger, you know, magnification of this um, change. You can see that the capillary loops, um, although they don't appear, the glomerulus does not appear hypercellular inside, but there is extra capillary increased cellularity with compression of the capillary loops and wrinkling of the capillary loops. So you can't actually, um, uh, you cannot actually appreciate the lumens of the capillary loops, except for a few ones over here. Um, this is a trichrome stain that highlights these protein droplets that look, uh, as you can see, that they are red. So one pitfall would be um, you could ask, oh, why aren't you, why isn't this a crescent and why aren't these uh, RBCs, right? So um, you can compare these RBCs that are inside the capillary loop here, and then you can see these um, uh, droplets, these protein globule, globules that are different in size from the RBCs. Some of them are large and they have a variation in their uh, tinctorial properties. Some are red, some are pink, some are blue, more consistent with um, protein. And uh, a PAS definitely excludes the possibility of RBCs because RBCs, as you can see here, they don't stain with PAS. So they will look grayish 
on um, PAS, but protein will stain very pink on PAS. So definitely protein droplets in the inside the podocytes with collapsing features. Um, the tubules so showed evidence of significant injury, uh, most in the form of either vacuolization, you can see these um, uh, round spaces in the tubular epithelial cells, but also they were very, they showed very prominent protein granules indicating that uh, there is significant proteinuria and these tubules are trying to reabsorb all this, this protein that's being leaked from the uh, glomeruli. This is to compare just another patient with just acute tubular injury, like just, uh, you know, uh, a regular acute tubular injury with a dilatation of the lumina and a little bit of loss of brush borders. And this is the, this patient, our patient that had a lot of protein in the tubules. Interestingly, some tubules also did show a significant dilatation almost trying to form microcysts. And I'll talk a little bit about this later. And the immunofluorescence, except for albumin, was all negative for immunoglobulins and complement. As you can see, there's a glomerulus here. And um, it was uh, the, for the immunofluorescence was negative, but then it was positive for protein, albumin in these uh, protein droplets in renal tubules. Um, by uh, electron microscopy, we did see significant food process effacement of the, so here we can see the glomerular basement membranes that are these linear structures, lace-like structures here. This is the urinary space, and this is actually the magnification here. Uh, sorry, the, the scale bar for, for uh, size comparison. And then you can see um, the podocytes, uh, you, you don't really appreciate the fruit processes. Inside the capillary loop on the blood side, you can see this is an endothelial cell. You can see the nucleus here with the chromatin and the cytoplasm of the nuclear cell. And you see this structure here, which at high magnification um, shows a reticular or, or fishnet-like appearance. And this is what we call an inclusion or a tubular reticular inclusion. So we are familiar with this tubular reticular inclusion or TRI, which are actually not viral inclusions. Um, studies have shown that if you digest this with uh, ribonucleases uh, deoxy, or ribonuclease, they don't get digested, but they have a, a phospholipid and, and proteins um, composition. So they are actually um, so-called interferon footprints, and um, we see them normally in, um, you know, um, viral infections, um, it was once very considered specific for HIV, but now we know that in, in other viral infections, we can have it as parvovirus B19, et cetera. We also, they are also very common in lupus nephritis and uh, interferon treatment. Um, curiously, we did see um, some, and this, you know, we just, um, because there was a patient with COVID-19 and we are learning from, you know, these cases. And so we went back and, um, saw some, um, if you just blow this up, we saw some interesting particles which we could not actually, um, if, you, if you 
take this magnification, it's a very high magnification in our electron microscope. It's not a research microscope, it is a TEM um, that does not go at, uh, you know, when we go beyond 100,000 magnification, we start to lose um, the resolution. So um, we did, uh, this is just to, um, because at one point, um, you know, in the previous decade, um, the, we described, this is a case of HIV nephropathy. And um, just, you know, at one point, the high vent triad was considered to be collapsing glomerulopathy uh, with microcystic dilatation of the tubules and um, these TRIs, these tubular reticular inclusions, and um, uh, significant podocyte damage. Um, and this was the, what we used to call the, uh, you know, the signs and the triad of hyphen. Um, but coming back to our patient, then we started scoping, um, you know, around just to see, you know, we're just trying to maybe try to localize particles. And as you can see, this is a um, low magnification. You can see this mesangial cell here with uh, mitochondria as um, they're about um, 800 nanometers. And then you can see and note that these are very small, but um, we did um, go at higher magnifications and found these suspicious particles, but which we could not, you know, diagnose. We don't, as you can see, we don't see a double membrane. We do see these um, outside proteins that are possibly mimicking spikes. But as you can see, there's an elongated structure here just on the side that also has this. So this was inconclusive. Um, so we, and note that this is eight, 80,000 magnification and note that anything beyond that we, use, we lose resolution. In fact, we did um, consult our uh, microbiology team. They advised against the diagnosis of um, COVID-19 by electron microscopy. It's not a validated study. And actually, um, we do have reports already now, you know, saying that appearances can be deceiving in viral-like inclusions in COVID-19 um, negative, uh, even in COVID-19 negative um, biopsies by EM. So, uh, meaning that cases that were tested by other methods that were negative had some particles that were suspicious for um, COVID-19 and at one point might have been diagnosed as COVID-19, but we are not sure. So just keeping in mind this, um, then we decided to send this case out for our uh, RT-PCR, but I'll just go um, give this back to Dr. Yacouben and now I'll, I'll, I'll give you the result of the RT-PCR. Yeah, thank you, Danny. So again, as I remember, we I said the, the patient was in outlying hospital. I was not personally taking care of him. The treatment team discussed the prednisone with the patient. Uh, he decided against it, and he left against medical advice on 11-4-2020. The patient came back to Mercy Hospital this time, though, when I first saw him back on 11-5. So one day after, he was taking amlodipine, he was taking losartan, and atorvastatin, but was not taking prednisone. Again, diarrhea, occasional vomiting, weak, but really minimal respiratory symptoms. This is some of his lab when he came in to Mercy. That's about, uh, what, six, seven days after presentation now. Uh, CPK was mildly elevated. Ferritin was mildly, moderately elevated. 
C-reactive protein was 3.8. Again, upon admission was about 15. So it's actually coming down. His interleukin-6 was measured and was 15.1. So I would say mildly elevated. So I would not classify it at all as lymphokine storm. UA showed significant improvement this time, though. His uh, urine protein gradient ratio was 1.31 with fairly minimal uh, urine activity. And the patient already felt that he lost significant amount of weight and his edema has improved. Next, please. That's his lab. And again, uh, the lab go from right to left. You can see actually back in 2018, we're able to find one lab for him. His creatinine was 1.4 with GFR 70. The gentleman is big muscular guy. So 1.4 may be normal, may not be normal necessarily for him. On 11.5, his creatinine was 4.8. And as you can see, steadily has improved significantly actually. He was discharged from the hospital with significant improvement in his uh, GI symptoms with creatinine three and a half. And his albumin, as you can see, was, uh, um, let me see here, was 2.2 uh, upon discharge was 2.5. Uh, the patient was seen in follow-up on November 30th. And this is his lab right here. He felt really back to normal. Uh, uh, no GI symptoms, no respiratory symptoms, creatinine, by that time was 2.1, his blood pressure was mildly elevated with albumin level 4.1 with symptoms entirely uh, resolved. His, his edema is completely gone. Next please. Uh, his weight was back to 215. That's his actually baseline weight was 240 when well, was initially hospitalized. Stopped taking his furosemide. He's currently taking amlodipine. Losartan and chlorothyridone. His losartan was up to 100 daily because of elevated blood pressure. APOL1 risk alleles uh, uh, obtained, but uh, probably going to take a week or 10 more days to come back. And that's what I have. So, um, just a and uh, just a, some background in uh, the cases that already have been diagnosed with collapsing uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, collapsing glomerulopathy. Um, this was actually, and I think uh, Dr. Maria's story for um, referring this um, actually was presented at the um, Kidney Week. And um, so there were, you know, a few reports, um, but significant reports. And um, as we can see uh, some, some things that were similar to our patient, but also that have been observed in these patients with collapsing glomyelopathy, is that um, all of them occurred in black um, or African-American patients. Um, the, the ones that were actually tested for APOL1 uh, uh, mutation um, did show, um, you know, in all that were tested, um, showed um, APOL1, uh, some, some kind of uh, APOL1 APO mutation. Um, in some of them, uh, there were tubular reticular inclusions identified. And um, this is actually, these were actually studies that were performed in the tissue to, to try and identify COVID-19. So as you can see, none of, virtually, except for this one, 
that was reported by, and I will say this quote unquote, reported by EM, but um, others uh, that have been tested either by electron microscopy, immunohistochemistry, protein stain, and even RNA, uh, either by PCR or um, in situ hybridization, were all negative, um, have been all reported as negative. This is actually the case that was reported by EM. And as you can see, these particles, I mean, you know, um, this is a 124,000 magnification. And in my opinion, this is not a very good um, resolution already. You can see that there is loss of resolution. And, but these are, you know, possible particles, but um, only actually reported in one case. Um, and again, I'm reinforcing that we are cautiously, you know, we are actually not, uh, here we are not making this diagnosis in our cases of, um, we just, stop doing EM to try to find viral particles by our, in our electron microscope. So as I said, we sent this tissue for um, outside at Stanford, Stanford University, and they did an RT-PCR on renal tissue, which was negative. Um, so I just wanted to um, also stress that um, these cases, you know, from a review that I, you know, that I did in discussions, the way that they're managed is, you know, just uh, as, you know, in HIV, in, in HIV-N, and also in HIV-N, we don't have, you know, we never identified the retrovirus, you know, but we, we do have this finding of uh, podocyte injury in the collapsing form, in which we believe that it's uh, cytokine um, induced, it's inflammation induced, and um, you know, similar to other types of photocyte injury, and that um, the best way to manage will be, you know, uh, supportive measures and trying to treat the cause. But um, I'll leave it to you if you um, have any questions and want to discuss um, with in mind that we have another case. We can also leave for, for the end of the presentation. Danny, I had a quick question because it's very relevant to this um, table. How do you rule out the possibility that all you're all you're picking up is the disparity bias that you know black because now the term is black male black rather than African American, black Americans um, just have a disparity. They're you know you're picking up you know the most com you know the most the illest people who are at risk of COVID nineteen, and of course we know blacks will have April one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this definitely has to be considered and it's a very important point to be brought up and um, they will be li more likely to be tested um, and uh, you're right they're they're going to be the ones that are be more likely to be tested however you know uh, just taking these reports from the from from what was presented in the ISN but that's a great point yeah, Danny Fadiakub, and for uh, I think the association is well well established right now. Association between high risk allele G1, G1, G2, G2, and collapsing GN. It's it's. Uh, I'm not sure I can say it doesn't happen without it, but it's 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 really really rare to see, and that's well established in HIV also. Very very rare to have collapsing GN if you don't carry both both G1, G1, or G2, G2, and some only one risk allele. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, just by 
coincidence or by looking at it because they're African-American. I think it's real. Mm. Any other questions? I have a question for you, Danny. I was looking at your electron microscopy and, and I wonder how, how, how the COVID would look like in, in the lung tissue because it, presumably this thing is gonna attach itself to the membrane, is gonna leave its own membrane outside and pump its RNA inside the cell. So, so does it make sense to see the whole particle inside the cell itself? And presumably the RNA is gonna be just inside the cell now, not the whole virus. So I don't know how it will look like in. In the lung, uh, we do have reports in the, in the lung uh, tissue and um, both in um, pneumocytes and um, endothelial cells of the vasculature and the references that we that we have it's also you know we also have the the, it, it, the the particles actually look remarkably similar to this I don't know if if the virus I mean because when it starts replicating inside I know that the virus when it invades the cell it will lose um, the spike protein it will you know because it's the attachment but once it starts replicating inside the cell, supposedly they, they should be intact. So um, if we have time in the end, I can actually pull some reports of the particles that were identified in the lung, but they, they just look similar to, to these, um, like with the little you know, uh, envelope and double envelope in the crown. Does it make sense or? Yeah, it does. It does. I think it's. I think a lot of people have shown the similar particle pre-COVID era, when they went back to do the biopsy and they saw similar structures, completely mm -hmm. similar, the same exact one. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, 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 think I agree with you. I don't think it's real. It's probably mm -hmm. just vesicles inside the cells. Whenever yeah. This this case actually that where they reported that these are viral-like inclusions. Um, these were these were actually definitely what you are describing. These were just vesicles, and they were you know in the tissue actually ended up being tested, and it was negative. So, okay, I think we'll uh, yeah, I think we should um, move on to the next case. All right, so. All right. Next case, we have Dr. Harshman, and um, I'll also give the talk, the talk to her and then um, show the biopsy, although she started yeah. with... With the, the old picture, yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm Lindsay Harshman. I'm one of the pediatric nephrologists here, and um, I have a, an interesting case to present here. Um, arguably at the edge of our uh, pediatric threshold, a 19-year-old male who has a history of C3G, um, had followed with um, my colleague, Dr. Nestor, and still does um, because of his C3G. He's um, a status post um, transplant in July 2019, um, deceased brain death, um, kidney transplant, and did actually really quite well until um, February of 2020 of this year. He was noted to have recurrence of a C3 glomerulopathy within the transplant kidney. That was associated with new proteinuria and hematuria, 
um, and an elevation in his creatinine at the time of that biopsy. So given the finding of biopsy is shown here in February 2020, plus um, ongoing abnormal biomarkers and um, proteinuria hematuria that were new, um, we uh, discussed with Dr. Nestor, and he was considered a recurrent um, C3G at that time and was actually started on an, an investigational complement study drug that Dr. Nestor um, has a study for here that's an anti-factor B drug and has been on that drug since this, that time. Um, and that, that was, the, again, oh, go ahead, what? Is that the LMP023? Mm-hmm. I'll be curious to know whatever Carla names it in the future, but <laughs> um, yes, that's, that is the, the drug as of now. So, and you can see the mesangial expansion and hypercellularity. Um, I didn't obviously include the um, IF, but there was mesangial and capillary C3 positive on IF that was um, at least moderate in stain. Next slide. So um, these were his labs um, in fall of 2020, not too long ago. Um, his creatinine, again, at the time of recurrence in 2020 was about 1.6. And over the summer, um, we had sort of struggled with his creatinine a little bit, although knowing, um, thanks to Carla's close surveillance, that his biomarkers actually looked pretty darn good. Um, between uh, February and fall, his creatinine was variable between 1.4 to 2 after starting his study drug. Notably, his um, complement actually was beautiful. Um, his complement had really come up into normal range, whereas previously um, he uh, had complement levels in the you know, 40s to 60s. So, um, oh, can you go back, Danny? Oh, sorry. Fine. Um, the routine labs in November um, showed that his um, stable abnormal creatinine in the um, one to two range um, did a, um, you know, insert emoji here face to 3.23 um, um, in mid-November. And that emoji basically represents how I felt at the time the labs came back. Um, so... The patient was brought in for biopsy. Notably, he lives outside of Iowa in a, um, a COVID hot zone, even more so than Iowa was at that point in time. When I spoke to the patient on the phone prior to bringing him in, um, you know, doing our typical COVID screening questions, he said, I'm okay, I'm just tired, no fever, reporting some mild edema. And you can see as well his um, uh, albumin trends um, at the bottom right that his albumin, the in-house is on the um, left middle column there, yep, and then the external um, albumin's on the right. And they'd been hanging um, between two to three um, for the months of September, October, and November. Go ahead, Danny. Oh. Mm-hmm. So he was admitted on November 19th, just a handful of weeks ago prior to a biopsy on the 20th. When he came in, um, he was fairly hypertensive, blood pressures, 150s, 160s on um, three agents already, I believe. Um, and his UPC was up to uh, 9.6. Tacro was in goal. He'd been optimized on Celsept and again remained pot on his um, investigational study drug um, with really beautiful complement levels, um, 107 to 128. And in our admission pre-procedure COVID testing, he was found to be positive. Um, <clears throat> no respiratory distress, afebrile. But if you look at his labs, you know, he had mild leukopenia compared to his usual. His white count was down to 3.5, whereas he typically sits about 6 to 7. Some uh, slightly lower neutrophils, slightly lower lymphocytes, nothing terrible. And a, a little bit of a mild anemia as well. 
for him, we actually did not get um, a CPK or a CRP at the time of admission because we were bringing him in for what we presumed would be um, worsening of his C3G. So, and given that, again, the constellation of overall well-appearing status um, that would suggest on admission against an infectious etiology, and we didn't um, go any further with an infectious uh, uh, review. So, go ahead, Danny. So, his biopsy. Take it away. <laughs> okay. Um... So uh, this biopsy was actually reviewed by Dr. Dai. So if he's here and wants to, um, just uh, if you want, if you had any anything to complete that I didn't cover, just let me know. Um, so, um, but the report um, that we had by report, we had um, uh, some mild, um, mild to moderate interstitial inflammation with, as you see here, mild tubulitis. This is a PAS stain. So we know that PAS stain highlights tubular basement membranes, and it is the ideal stain to evaluate for tubulitis, um, to separate the inflammation that is in the interstitium from also the inflammation, which is um, actually in the tubular epithelial cell. So you can see, and for uh, cell-mediated rejection, we, uh, the, the classic description of a cell-mediated rejection, is, it is, it's lymphocytic, it's by T cells predominantly, and um, uh, we have the borderline, the 1A and 1B, meaning mild, moderate, and severe uh, cell-mediated rejection uh, when it's tubular interstitial. So um, in order to have mild um, rejection or suspicious for rejection, we um, have a cutoff of uh, one to four lymphocytes per tubular cross-section or per 10 tubular cells. So you can see these darker um, blue cells that are lymphocytes that are here um, sort of invading the renal tubules. So borderline um, tubular interstitial inflammation, suspicious for mild acute cell-mediated rejection. We also had some tubules that showed um, some evidence of injury, of acute injury, even the ones that were not inflamed. So these, this one actually shows um, vacuoles, uh, meaning hydropic cell change. Um, and the glomeruli, and um, definitely you can see even by this H&E, um, again, although H&E is not the ideal thing to evaluate for glomerular detail, but you can see that this glomerulus is definitely hypercellular. You can see uh, both the component that is intrinsic to the glomeruli and in the capillary loops, there is also increased cellularity and also inflammatory cells that are infiltrating this glomerulus. Since this is a transplant, we of course need to bring up besides um, um, uh, immune complex mediated or, uh, or complement mediated glomerulonephritis, the possibility of antibody mediated rejection in the form of glomerulitis. So let's just hold, hold, hold on to this thought, but I'm um, just going, uh, showing more of the glomerular morphology. We, you can see a possible early crescent arising here. Um, maybe a cellular and fibrous component that therefore a fibrous cellular crescent. Um, on this other glomerulus at a higher magnification on PAS stain, you can see another small, more like a cellular crescent because you can see um, proliferation of the um, 
cells, the parietal epithelial cells, and you can also appreciate mesangial hypercellularity, but also intracapillary hypercellularity. So at this point, we call it a proliferative glomerulonephritis with uh, focal crescents. When you look at the uh, JMS stain, you can see that although there is some scarring of the mesangial areas uh, of the mesangium in some glomeruli highlighted by this bl black um, staining here, um, and, but you also can see possible double contours. Um, you can see a black and then a pink and then a black here. So um, possible reduplication of the glomerular basement membrane, which confer the glomeruli what we call a membranal proliferative appearance. By, so, you know, how do we sort this out if this is a glomerulitis or is it a glomerulonephritis? Um, first, we have the immunofluorescence to help us, you know, show us um, which if there are actually significant staining for complements and immunoglobulins. And of course, by EM, we're going to look for deposits in the basement membrane. So um, indeed, we had a C3, and the previous biopsies did show a C3 stain. Um, so, so just as this one, this one was classified with an intensity of, intensity of one to two plus. You can also see the pattern of staining that it, it is in the capillary loops, you have almost a, I don't want to call it linear because linear we also, we used to correlate it with anti-GBM, but that's why we call it thick linear interrupted, meaning that there is suggestion that, that there might be a significant deposits in the glomerular uh, basement membranes, but also in the mesangial areas. Um, Interestingly, uh, which was not shown, which was not present in the previous biopsies, which basically only showed um, C3, uh, the latest biopsy, which was in September, did show some C4D, but C4D is to some extent ex expected to be positive in glomeruli unless they have a distinct pattern. But this biopsy actually showed additionally C1Q, which was a one plus uh, staining. And as you know, we classify our staining from one to four plus, um, one plus being already significant and four plus being the strongest. So we had a one plus staining for C1Q. And we also had a positive staining for IgG, which was actually stronger than the C3. We also had IgM, which was similar to the C3 intensity. And we also had um, IgA, um, which was also a significant staining. So um, I, a full house, right? The full house uh, pattern of staining, which was different from the previous biopsies. The peritubular capillary C4D staining uh, was negative. So um, here is actually the tubular interstitium, which is completely negative, and then the glomeruli um, that were marginal to the tissue in this field. And you can see that the C4D was positive in the glomeruli. And we can, we have to remember that C4 is a component of the classic path, pathway of complement um, as, as, as well as C1Q, um, but earlier. So the diagnosis that was made was a membranal proliferative glomerulonephritis with immune complex deposits and focal crescentic lesions. 
some um, tubular interstitial inflammation suspicious for Banff borderline. There are some acute tubular injury and then some um, chronic changes as well. But the C4D was negative in peritubular capillaries and also SV40 um, was tested and negative for, um, for um, glomerulonephritis. I'm really sorry. I Oh, so I, I think it's out of order. This is actually the, um, um, this is actually the um, uh, electron microscopy. But um, let's see if, yeah, let's just show the electron microscopy and then I'll go back to, uh, I'll, I'll give it back to Dr. Um, Dr. Harshman. So the electron microscopy did show um, you know, these are the glomerular basement membranes. And one of the pit, pitfalls of dense deposit disease slash C3GN is that the deposits, they can occupy such an extension of the glomerular basement membrane that they may mimic the basement membrane and uh, sometimes be under diagnosed when they are in, the, in their early stages. So, um, but here, as you can see, this is a normal glomerular basement membrane, which is gray. And then we have these dark um, black, almost like black deposits um, along the whole extension of the glomerular basement membranes and also mesangium. Here you can see more of these deposits. You can also see um, some degree of foot process effacement, although you can identify some podocytes. Um, and here again, a larger magnification showing that these deposits, they're starting to occupy the entire extension of the glomerular basement membranes. And in the native kidney, the patient did have a diagnosis of dense deposit disease. Um, so I'll go back to, um, I'll go back to, I'll give it back to Dr. Harshman. Perfect. So um, I think one thing just to make sure again that we were um, clear about is that the, you know, the full house pattern was definitely, um, you pause for a second and think about that. But um, as uh, Danny mentioned, it definitely, um, we think, you know, rep represents activation of the classical complement pathway in the setting of probably this viral um, illness as well, noting that he also does have some um, alternative um, complement issues as well. Um, so where we were at therapeutically for him, you know, given that this was borderline ACR and acute tubular injury noted on biopsy with C4D negative, DSA negative, we did go ahead and give a two-week um, burst and staper, a taper sorry, of steroid um, due to the borderline ACR. He continued on his investigational study drug and kept his cell septin tacro at baseline levels due to the presence of the borderline ACR We'd gone back and forth about, you know, should we drop these at all? Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. I have some data at the end of this um, just to show you about PEDS COVID um, patients with transplant. But um, one of the things that was a really big discussion point for us was, again, what if we stop his study drug, we could be putting him in um, a worse position as far as recurrence of uh, his disease or coming back truly in full force. It's already recurred. But trying to make sure that we weighed the risks and benefits of um, an investigational drug, our immune suppression, and then the patient's current um, graft status. Next slide. And just, um, I, I just uh, didn't oh, yeah. mention, but yeah, in the comments, I'm sorry You're about good. that, but in the comment, we also, because of the crescents, um, 
Dr. Dai suggested the correlation with the ANCA antibodies and because of the full house, the ANA. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. um, again, no respiratory symptoms, no, really, honestly, no COVID symptoms developed at any time for this patient. Um, within the past week, uh, the last labs, um, the 25th and the 2nd of December, as uh, creatinine had come down from that peak of 3.2 approximately um, to down to 2.2 in the midst of some steroids. His blood pressures have overall improved. And um, we did put him also on a little bit of low-dose furosemide and his edema has overall improved. His weights have been very stable. His albumin is stable as well. Um, you know, not ideal, but it's not worsening. So we're trying to be patient with that. And his UPC trend, as I did um, outline here, um, was quite reasonable for him back in October at 3.8. Then there's um, UPCs of nines in the November area and then down to 5.6 last week. So I did want to just share this data um, in this uh, venue too. I think it's really interesting data. We're part of a multi-center um, collaborative here, the Improving Renal Outcomes Collaborative. And this is over um, 30 PEDS transplant centers are involved in this collaborative. And um, what one of the goals we had was in the spring with the onset of COVID, um, implemented sort of a, a rapid fire data collection regarding COVID um, to be able to understand the incidence of COVID-19 infection in pediatric kidney transplant patients. So we have data from 13 PEDS kidney transplant centers that represents um, over 1,600 um, pediatric kidney transplant patients. And those centers um, reported all kidney transplant patient data um, for patients tested for COVID-19, both the positive and the negative tests. Um, in out of that uh, denominator of over 1,600 patients at those centers, um, we had 229 patients um, submitted with um, as tested patients. And out of those 229 tested patients, 10 of those patients um, were positive for COVID-19 between March and August. And um, half of the positive patients were asymptomatic. That gives us a cohort incidence rate of 0.6% um, for our positivity within the um, global cohort at our centers, and then an incidence in the tested patients of just under 5%, um, which is, you know, from the PEDS transplant community, we um, certainly all, any transplant patient, we um, really do a lot of counseling about infection risk and so forth, and this has been a big uh, issue of concern for our patients and families this year about, you know, how do we best take care of our kids? Can we, can we send them back to school? And so on and so forth. Um, and within this um, cohort of data that we have, again, about a quarter of the positive cases were found incidentally when they were being screened um, as asymptomatic in, uh, infections, being screened pre-procedurally and so forth. Um, in fact, there were actually two of the patients that were screened positive um, when they were admitted to the hospital to be treated for concomitant rejections and um, still, you know, went through rejection, anti-rejection therapy, um, and there were no um, graft losses, no uh, episodes of respiratory failure requiring intubation, um, and no um, deaths in this cohort. And very much consistent with findings of smaller PEDS kidney studies that are out there so far. And the only thing that really differentiated our cohort in these um, 13 pediatric kidney transplant centers is that our positive patients did tend to be older. Um, there was no association between hypertension um, or um, immune suppression regimen um, that discriminated um, a positive patient finding. And this was the 
Okay, so I'll just open for discussion or questions. A question mostly for Carla. So the fact that uh, you still see C3 in the kidney, does that mean that uh, the drug is really not completely blocking uh, the alternative pathway? Yeah, so, so to be completely fair, he, he, we don't know. Uh, we can only tell you what's going on in the periphery. And in the periphery, his complement system is completely shut down. He has a, this is a child who normally has a C3, you know, a quarter or a third of normal, uh, lots of complement breakdown products, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things in the periphery have become normal. We honestly don't know what's going on at the level of the kidney, but um, it would, uh, you know, for instance, if, if, there, if it's different in a different compartment sort of thing. Um, so I'm guessing that he still has the ability to activate complement, but it will not be through the convertases. We know that's a possibility. It's supposed to be a very small possibility, but maybe that takes over in a setting where someone has a co-infection, that sort of thing. And you would attribute the C1Q to the infection as well? Yeah, the, the infection, because it, it, the C1Q and um, the IGs, et cetera, those are all upstream of the convertases. So that's all stuff happening bef excuse me, before his disease even gets to the convertases, which is where his dysregulatory event is because he's, even to this day, he's very high nephritic factor uh, positive. That's, that's what's driving his disease if he has not got the convertases blocked. So yes, those are upstream of, the, of where the drug works. So they, of course, if they're um, inflated for any reason, whether it's you know the infection or whatever potential pathology is going on, those would still be present and on the kidney biopsy. Thank you. Any more questions or comments? Yeah, I have a question. Sorry, here I have a question. So. I tried to look up, I could not find any literature reporting um, glomerulonephritis other than collapsing in COVID-19. So when you guys talk about infection, are you guys talking about potential superimposed bacterial infection? And do you know if the patient may have that? For the PEDS patient, Dafu? Yeah. There was no evidence of any other bacterial infection. Whenever we bring a kid into biopsy, um, I'm sure as the adults do as well, you know, we check for urine infection. We check basically try to make sure that there's nothing else that we're missing that would be a need to be treated first. And everything else was um, clear for him. I mean, his urine is not normal, but there was the culture was negative. Um, so no other like, concomitant bacterial infection whatsoever. Um, so, I, you know, I guess my, my impression or hypothesis is Carl and I had talked about it was we wondered if, the, again, the COVID-19 was revving things up to a point that um, upstream of the convertases that this is where we ended up at. Yeah, I mean, that would be very interesting, but uh, I have not seen any report on this part, so maybe we can write it up. And But I'm, I'm not quite convinced how strong is the evidence to call it due to COVID-19. Mm. I mean, the, the full house staining and the, uh, and the crescent. Again, I would say that COVID-19 is incidental. Mm -hmm. It's an infection. It's activation of his complement system. It could have easily have been a skin infection, a lung infection. It could have been anything else. COVID-19 is incidental as far as I'm concerned. And of course, that's my opinion, but um, 
I think in this child who has incredibly dysregulated complement, it doesn't take a lot to tip him over mm -hmm. and COVID was it for him. But it could just as easily be, you know, March of 2021, it could be a skin infection that he gets. You know, and I guess to, to that point as well, as Carla said, basically anything feels like it could tip this young man over. He had a, um, a mental health crisis in the spring and summer and had some self-injurious behavior. And unfortunately, at that point in time as well, his um, creatinine um, bumped up as well. And we'd biopsied him in that juncture and he was not full house positive. It was still simply C3, but the peritubular um, uh, fibrosis early crescent finding, I think was there in the summer as well after his um, injurious behavior event and um, creatinine had bumped up into the twos then, but then came back down after a few weeks of potentially, you know, presumptively him settling back down within his complement system. But he's very, um, honestly, quite tricky. Can I ask two questions? Um, one is that do uh, people on immunosuppression, such as your patient uh, for kidney transplant, uh, do they actually have better response, better outcome when they get exposed to COVID-19? Do they have better uh, prognosis compared to just general uh, pediatric patient? The other question I have is with regard to the RT-PCR uh, in the first case, is it a very good test in picking up viral particles in picking in identifying viral virus in biopsy material? Well, with regard to the immune suppression um, component, and I, I'll speak to the pediatric side, and if there are, are adult colleagues on here who um, want to address the adult transplant side, I'd be happy to hear that too. My um, impression of sort of the, the national and even international literature for pediatric um, transplant patients, liver and kidney who have COVID, most centers are trying um, to maintain immune suppression. Even again, the centers that among the patients that were reported in our cohort, those patients um, had TACRO, came in with an AKI picture and TACRO was up at that point and was reduced, but otherwise, people are, are trying not to presumptively or preemptively reduce the immune suppression um, for these patients. And again, it's kind of the million dollar question, does the immune suppression help or hurt or do we just simply, we, we don't know, right? Um, but in the PED side, I think it's safe to say that our PEDS kidney patients overall have done very well. In our center, this is my only positive, knock on wood, COVID patient since um, the pandemic began. Um, so I, there's just a lot that we still don't fully, I think, understand about um, you know, back and forth what we need to do with immune suppression, but we've been trying to maintain it as best as possible. Regarding the uh, RT-PCR, I would be very cautious. Um, this, you know, all of us, we are just getting few cases for to use as control. Some cases we don't have, you know, um, I was discussing with Dr. Troxell in Stanford, uh, which would be the best approach. How, how would we um, test this? We're actually trying to validate the immunohistochemistry in our department. And we did use this case as a negative since the RT-PCR. RT-PCR seems to be the more the most sensitive one and more specific one, but still we still have very few cases. And I, I would, as, as other RT-PCRs in even, you know, by swab, I would be very cautious when we have a positive or a negative result. Of course, a negative, re a positive result, 
um, we do have a better, um, more sensitivity than specificity, but I, I would be, I would agree. Um, we would need more time to, you know, actually assess the reliability of these cases in tissue. I, I was, um, I, th I thought Dr. Yacoub wanted to ask a question or are we? Yeah, yeah, actually we can uh, pretty much say what you, what you guys said. It's very puzzling. I'm not sure we quite understand the physiology, pathophysiology of this. Uh, to my knowledge, has not been reported COVID-19 infection with somebody coming with full house picture. Uh, we don't biopsy everybody could clearly was COVID-19, but to my knowledge, has not been reported. I'll say second, Carla, it's probably not COVID-19. It's probably something else that infection is primary uh, suspect. Uh, yeah, it'd be lovely to see what his kidney biopsy in the future will show. I'm sure it Unfortunately, he probably get a chance to have another biopsy in the future, and I would probably bet his full house will disappear. Yeah, I think his biopsy is now, uh, Lindsay, you probably- January, I think. His biopsy is in January. It may not be enough time to allow him to clear it all, but I predict it goes back to at least C3 dominant, even if it's not C3 isolated, which is his baseline. So, so when we use the, uh, did you say it was a C5 convertase inhibitor? When we He's on an anti-factor B inhibitor. Oh, anti-factor B inhibitor. Oh, C3 convertase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. which is C3 convertase inhibitor. I just have a, one question for uh, the, the patient with the collapsing. Um, is, was it, um, I don't have an experience with in the 90s and um, in the early 2000s how um, the, these patients, apparently the patients with, with high vein, which is HIV nephropathy, would respond well to heart and their collapsing variant, although having this APOE1 mutation would respond well to, um, to the treatment, uh, antiretroviral treatment and recover, as opposed to the patients with just, you know, idiopathic collapsing gene, as we know, it's a very... It's it's the more the most aggressive variant of of um, of uh, uh, FSGS, and there is not a a great established treatment. So I was wondering if any insights for um, people who had had the chance to treat patients with high vein, and if these are compare uh, are comparable to the COVID to the COVID associated nephropathy, or any insights in that. Danny, I've not treated a high van personally, but I can tell you, it, if you remove the insulting factor, clearly the apodocytes have time to recover and they will recover quickly, like in this guy. And if somebody put him on, uh, if he cannot remove the, so you have the APOL1 likely, and then something else come on top of it. If he cannot remove the something on top of it, the damaged apodocyte become permanent, history basement membrane end up with a permanent sclerosis and, and subsequently, uh, uh, scar tissue. So I think it's the key is going to be is can you remove the the inciting factor which come on top of APOL1. That's at least the way I think of it. Okay, thank you. Any more questions or comments? 
Okay. Um, so very, very interesting. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Yacoub and um, Dr. Harshman. Very interesting discussion. And we hope to keep updating on these, on these interesting cases. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Danny, great conference.